0: amen so uh, we actually left off I believe I am um, some confusion about um, the location I've been in and out of uh, this uh, pulpit and um, looking at uh, our recording history and my recollection were in first John uh, chapter three beginning at verse ten but he begins in verse 10 by saying in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made visible or made known and uh, you could be left scrambling so um, he begins in verse 4 talking about living in sin and we spent a lot of time looking at the tense of the verbs okay because it's the idea of living in sin in the way that you were before you met the Lord. So if you continue to live in sin the way you did before you met the Lord, then you really need to question whether you've met the Lord is is what is being raised. There should be a change. There should be a difference. And uh, then when you get to verse 10 and he says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he sort of says, you know, by this, uh, you'll know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. It would be obvious is what he's saying. So some of the things just to help you, because I know some of you have expressed that you're still sort of struggling with this concept. Like uh, because this blatantly says, if you sin, then you are not of God in the end. So you're you're left sort of under this cloud of condemnation. Like I sin, you know, like, so am I not of God, and like, are there actually Christians who don't sin? Like, what are we talking about here? And it's the tense of the verb. It's the idea of if you live the life of sin that you did before you knew the Lord, uh, you're going to fall into sin. You're human. You're going to fail. You're going to have problems, and you're going to hate it, and you're going to want to get out of it. That's an evidence that you're a child of God. You know, when, when we before we knew the Lord at all look if we fell into a pile of sin we were like hooray, you know this this is a, this is a thing to celebrate this is wonderful you know that was how we were before we knew the Lord and and maybe even uh, you know early on in our walk with the Lord uh, there was sort of a this desire for sin still but but right away you begin to realize like this is terrible and i don't want this I want to be delivered from this. And this is why John is saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then when you come to verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So the the practicing righteousness the same way you practiced sin, getting better at it and improving it, improving your walk. Um, you know, I, uh, the, um couple of different ways that I illustrate this. Um, uh, you know, if you've ridden a bicycle when you were younger, and then you know years later you get back on the bike, um, you learn where that sense of balance is you know your body sort of uh, adjusts itself to okay now and and right away things start to become very smooth might be shaky at first but then right away you begin to smooth out the practicing of the walk as a christian is a similar thing you know there's the falling and the floundering and the you know the problems but the the right away you want balance and you want to be able to walk and you want to be able Uh, To progress forward without the failing and the floundering and the falling uh, that comes. So this idea of practicing righteousness, right? This is not the idea of I'm better than anybody else. I'm righteous. You know, look down your nose, uh, you know, speak ill of others. It's not that self-righteousness that we're talking about. It's about real righteousness. And in case you're wondering, Uh, The definition of righteousness is really quite simple. It's found in being right with God and being right with man. You know, if I say that I'm right with God, but I'm ripping you off constantly, I'm not right with man, right? I'm creating problems in in my relationships. I, I, I do everything I could to improve my relationships with my fellow men, but I renounce God. Well, I'm not right with God. Uh, so it's the balance of, of being right with God and right with man, uh, which comes back to uh, the two commandments that were left for uh, the New Testament Christians. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so so it's it's a simple program uh, that doesn't require some massive burden of the law and all that the Jews were struggling with here at the time. The practice of righteousness uh, if they don't practice righteousness, they're not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, love needs to be defined. Uh, we uh, have one word for love, and our culture has adopted this attitude of tolerance. And that—that that is like, in our culture, that's the litmus test for if you love, if you tolerate all things. Okay, Well, well, here's the deal. Nature itself tells you you should not tolerate all things, right? You know, if I discover you put poison in my food, uh, I'm going to be upset with you, right? And if I discover you've done it a second time, I'm going to be more upset with you, okay? I, I shouldn't just put up with anything. And our culture is poisoning the culture with all kinds of sinfulness, and it's acting like oh you you shouldn't say anything about this you shouldn't complain about this you know because if you tr- if you're a christian if you truly love you'll tolerate everything um, no no i won't no i i will not how about this uh, i will not i might tolerate certain degrees of insult and injury upon myself but especially when i see you harming others i will not tolerate that the innocent children the garbage that's being pumped into our public school systems right now, the way that our culture is just dying and eroding and falling. No, no. I'm not going to sit by and call that love and be tolerant. You know, forgive me for my repetition, but uh, there was an occasion where my oldest daughter, Christian, was very little and uh, she's younger than three. She had a pair of... Of tweezers in her hand and she's about to insert them in the electrical outlet in the wall she's inches from this progressing forward I scream like a banshee fly through the air and smash her little hand to keep her from doing that and man she was so offended I injured her man she was, she, was, she had no, like, what with the screaming and the hitting? And, the, you know, to her, that didn't feel like love at all. For all of us in the room, hopefully we understand. That was profound love. That was profound love of a parent that was saying, that's going to potentially kill you. I will not allow you to conduct yourself in this. And so within our culture... When we say that is wrong and that must stop, they go, oh, you don't love me. No, no, I love you more than you can imagine. And I love the culture that is around you more than you can imagine. Because what you're doing is so incredibly destructive. Love here is the unconditional love of God. It's agape. And it's the idea of I love you in your sin so much that I want to change you. I want to see you change. All right? Love doesn't look at the child with the tweezers and the electrical outlet and goes, I I love you so much. I'm just going to let you do that. I just, you have things to explore and things to learn. Our culture is saying this junk. You need to find yourself. You and the tweezers and the electrical outlet need to have this experience. It'll deepen you as a person. (laughs) <laughs> or kill you, you know. You know, our culture says stupid things, right? You know, in this regard, I hear this phrase everywhere, it drives me crazy, about what does not kill you will make you stronger. Okay, yeah, I don't mean to make fun of it at all, but there was a top-performing athlete in Australia who was at a drinking party with his friends, and they dared him to swallow a slug and drink, you know, wash it down with a beer. He did it. And it killed him, right? It maimed him at first. He, he was horribly destroyed as a person for years and then ultimately died. Hey, what does not kill you may maim you, right? So, some of us, right, have the damage that's going to be with us the rest of our lives, From the things that we did, that which does not kill me, uh, makes me stronger. Not true. That is not a true statement. And love may jump in screaming like a banshee and start swinging to try to stop certain behavior in order to rescue the person. Why? Because many of us have maimed ourselves, right? And we know the outcome of that situation of that sexual sin, of that drug use, of that dishonesty, of whatever thing we're describing. We know personally the destruction that comes through these things. And love, so when we're reading here, right, that he who is born of God is a child of God, has this love for his brothers, it it is the selfless love of agape and that takes many different forms in its behavior it is not tolerance right it doesn't it, that isn't like the key characteristic of this love love has action to it love his brother for this is the message verse 11 that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another okay uh, loving one another again this, this unconditional love that someone would come to know the Lord in the process. There are a couple of verses here that I want to look up with us. Uh, for this, me- this is the message we heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Uh, uh, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers righteous, right? So, so I want you to notice a few things here, and they're very poignant to the culture we live in and things that are going on inside the church. Uh, you know, Cain uh, had choices uh, to make over his hatred for his brother. Read again. Not as Cain, right? Love your brother, love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. His his works were evil and his brother's were righteous. We're talking about uh, Abel bringing offering to the Lord. Cain bringing an offering that was the work of the ground. Okay, how were they? one righteous and the other unrighteous. Well, we don't know down to the nuance, okay? But we know this. Uh, they aren't eating animals at that point. That doesn't happen until after the flood, right? We're in Genesis chapter four, the flood, the flood, Genesis chapter six, when they emerge from the ark, the Lord tells them, now you can eat the animals. So so they were vegetarian prior to, so, so here's, Abel offering sheep, lambs, sacrifice to the Lord. Why? Well, lots of possibilities, right? Adam and Eve sinned. God kills an animal, skins it, makes clothes for them. Their sin resulted in death of an animal, probably a lamb. uh, We're assuming. We don't know that for certain, but it stands to reason that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and all the lambs they have to offer between there and (laughs) jesus ultimate sacrifice on the cross Uh, but cain is tilling the ground and offering from his work Uh, my summary is uh, cain is giving from his own works that's man's religion and abel is obeying god and sacrificing an animal Uh, however you want to define that uh cain's was wicked and abel's was righteous okay that's the summary and we can parse that out in lots of different ways but the bottom line is that cain's sacrifice was wicked abel's was righteous god accepts abel not just his sacrifice abel and he rejects cain cain's filled with rage and now wants to kill his brother over this issue. That's what we're hearing described right here. Uh, if you follow certain trains of thought, uh, people will say things like, well, you know, Cain was created that way. There was nothing he could do about his thought processes and his behavior. God made him evil, and therefore God judged him. Well, here, uh, what Genesis chapter 4 beginning at verse 6, says, So the Lord said to Cain, Whoa, hey, stop. Cain is unrighteous, and God has rejected him, and yet God speaks to Cain. Uh, Follow me in this. Was there a time in your life where you were not following God, and yet today, at least today, you can look back and realize God was speaking to me. God was confronting me. God was trying to guide me to where I needed to be. Follow it further. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? I can see your heart. God is saying to Cain, you are angry. I can see what's in your heart. And your outward expression shows what's in your heart. So I know internally and I can see externally what's going on with you. You can't get away from God. You can try to act like, oh, you don't know what my heart is, right? In Maine, we often hear people say, the good Lord knows my hat." you know. Yeah, that's that's the problem, isn't it? The good Lord does know your hat, and just how wicked it is, you know. And I don't mean in a good way, you know, like wicked good or nothing. Uh, he knows how wicked it is the heart is you know desperately wicked deceitful above all things who can know it the prophet stated Cain right here the Lord is saying why are you angry why is your countenance fallen if you do well if you do well right for the hardcore Calvinist brothers they're saying Cain can't do anything other than bad God created him as evil to destroy him. Cain is going to do evil, so there's nothing he can do about it. But God is saying, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. Now, this sin lying at the door is like what Peter tells us about the devil, like a crouching lion, right? Uh, My daughter, Abigail, Tormented, okay, played with uh, our cat growing up. Cat was a kitten. She was a little girl, and they had this hate-hate uh, relationship. And, um, uh, you know, you'd hear her uh, in the middle of the night as she's, like, traveling through the house to go to bed or go use the bathroom, and then all of a sudden there's this, ah! Screaming and thrashing and fight because the cat has been crouching in wait for her in the dark. He can see perfectly well, and she's dazed and confused. And now he's attacking her. Okay. And I don't mean, and there have been a couple times in that cat's life where I literally peeled the cat off my daughter. Okay. And he, just, and he then didn't attack me. He was like, oh, okay. You know, just he wanted sin crouching at the door. Wanting to pounce, wanting to destroy, wanting to harm. God is warning him right here, saying if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. Not in a friendly way, in a destructive way. Sin is trying to destroy. Hear this last bit. But you should rule over it. you should conquer it. That puts, that puts my sin on my shoulders and it puts your sin on your shoulders. If you can recognize the wrong in your behavior, that means you have to begin to address it with the Lord, that this needs to go. And I need your help conquering. How are you ever going to conquer a crouching lion? That thing would tear you to bits in seconds. You you need, right, a great defender. You you need the protector of your soul, right? James tells us, draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The scripture does not say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay? You know, The the thought, you got to get face to face at some point with a big cat. In your life, go to the zoo, go across the road, go to the zoo, and don't stare them in the eye, but look a big cat in the face and understand what the Lord is saying, that that animal will destroy you. And that's its desire. Sin crouching at the door wants to destroy you, but you, you must rule over it. That's only gonna come through drawing near to God. You have to draw near to God and let God conquer that animal, that that beast, the devil himself. This is beyond this is actually beyond that, right? Because it, it gets into the spiritual of. Satan is the grand serpent of old. He is the dragon. There's, there's no defending yourself against that. You have to have the power and the might of the Lord. I want to give you a, another thought along this line. Uh, you might look at 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 9 where the Lord says the Lord is not slack. Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long-suffering towards us, patient with us. And here's the punchline. Not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance, all. if, If you're creating a thing in your mind, in your heart, in your behavior, in your doctrine, in your belief system, like, uh, there's nothing I can do about this area of failure in my life. Uh, God's just going to have to accept me this way. The scripture is telling us that God wants us to come to repentance. He wants us to change. He wants to renew us, in this, and he is offering us his strength to accomplish it. We need to be delivered out of it, and so don't others. We start this message of tolerance, and you know that's, that's honestly why Calvinism works so well for a lot of people, because they, they have the mentality of, well, this is the way God made me, so there's nothing I can do. This is who I am. This is how I am, so I'm going to find some way to compromise in this. I'll, I'll call myself a Christian, and I won't deal with this issue in my life. It's not what the Lord is offering us. He's offering freedom from these things. His strength, his Holy Spirit, his deliverance. This is how the Lord is calling us. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. You go right back to chapter 1, right? If we we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and with God, with one another. It becomes horizontal and vertical. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we say this is an area of compromise and I need to submit to the Lord and I need to see him conquer this in my life. Uh, If we don't do that and we leave the compromise and we leave the sin, the first thing that breaks is... Is what we can't see. It's the relationship with the Lord, but that will also break the relationship with the body of Christ. Both things have to be working in conjunction. That we're allowing the Lord to deliver us from these things. And we walk in the light as He is in the light. And as we said, right? That's not walking in perfection, that's walking in truth and honesty. When we say, this is my shortcoming, this is my failure. Please pray with me. Please pray for me. Then the Lord does that. He accepts us and he works to see those things changed. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. It goes on from there, but I mean, that's just the summary statement, isn't it? Right? The world is going to hate us. We, we need to make sure that we're not trying to be friends with the world. That's a very, very dangerous thing. OK, you know, in, in particular, if we, you know, uh, just having a conversation today about, uh, you know, one of the practices I developed a long time ago. The, how about this? The Lord developed this practice in my life a long time ago was that um, I, I would try to always listen to teaching until at least noon. So I get up in the morning and I put on uh, Joe Fosh or Chuck Smith or Ken Graves and I would listen. Uh, usually to where I was studying, where I was teaching, whatever was going on in my life, and I, I would listen to that same passage over and over. Listen to it by uh, you know Chuck Smith, and then I'd listen to it by Joe Foch, and then I'd listen to it by David Guzik, and then I'd listen to it by Ken Graves. And, and you know, around noon, I I might you know start listening to music, but all morning feed, you know grow, and sometimes it was all day. I end up listening to the Word of God all day, being taught. The Word of God. You know, uh, people ask me, like, how do you study? How do you do? What you're looking at is 34 plus years of studying this way, just all day absorbing and learning and growing and taking in in my life. Uh, this this issue, uh, you know, with the world hating you, I had to learn that a lot of the times. I'm going to be on job sites in locations where the people that are around don't want to hear what I'm listening to. I'm listening to the word of God being taught to me and they are bugged by that. Okay? At first, I was very intimidated why? Cuz I want them to like me. I don't want to I don't want to seem like a Jesus freak. I don't want them to reject me and I'm confessing to you that this is my worldly sinfulness and i begin to recognize oh that's actually me indirectly denying my relationship with the lord i'm not doing it so so then i sort of switch over with like it's just going to be an endurance thing i'm going to listen to it no matter what and eventually it became a thing where it was i'll say an element of pride i'm going to listen to this that bugs you good So be it. And I have suffered for it. I have been fired from jobs. So be it. The Lord has richly rewarded my life. And hopefully that richness in my life is paying out to you even right now as we sit here. The things that I have learned, the things that I have been taught, I am imparting and teaching to others that it would enrich them. We have to come to the place, you guys, where we actually embrace and enjoy the idea that the world is going to hate you. If you're trying to hide from that in any way, like I'll just, you know, tug my head and keep down and not make a scene and, you know, somehow be acceptable to them. Hey, you guys, it doesn't do anything. We have that mentality sometimes like this will win them over. Like I'll be gracious, I'll be kind. And, and through doing this, right, they'll recognize something in me admirable and, and they'll ask. No, they won't. Okay, they hate your guts because you're a believer. Okay, being polite, being kind, being curious, all of those things, good. But you have to, you have to embrace the idea. Here's the thing, you guys. It, what if we could flash to the throne room right there in that moment? imagine how ashamed they would be if they could see our God in his glory and recognize us in our glory and recognize the judgment that is upon them and all that they have lost. You have to view it through the lens of the scripture. If you're not, then you're viewing it through the lens of the world. And my submission to you is that it's a a love of the world when we do this. The world's gonna hate you. Embrace the concept. You know, if you can't right now, just write it down in little letters and go dwell on it on your own. Figure it out. The world's gonna hate you, and that's when you're hitting the mark. That's when you're actually doing it right, when the world despises you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Remember when you hated Christians? Now you love Christians. Whatever degree of struggle you may have around that, okay, uh, you know, I'm talking like when it's all good, when there aren't confrontations, when people's sinfulness isn't coming through. If we could just show up at church, read the word, study, grow, worship, sing songs every day, all day, that's a change. It's an evidence that we are children of God. The fact that we love the brethren we love being in fellowship so because we love the brethren he who does not love his brother abides in death you 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 haven't you haven't come into the faith you haven't come into the family you haven't been converted if if you do not have a love for the body of christ for christians for fellowship then, then you're still in the place That you were at. And that should be very uh, disconcerting to you. Uh, Because judgment uh, still hangs over you. You stay in the place of death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus taught, John, tells us that if you hate someone then you are a murderer, right? We always put it in the action class of that's the sin. If I murder someone, that's the sin. Jesus said, if you hate someone, then you have murdered them. You are presently a murderer, right? If you don't have murder in your heart, then you can't ever murder somebody, okay? Uh, You know, uh, first time I I really wrapped my mind around this, Uh, I was very young in the Lord listening to Chuck Smith, and he said, You are not a horse thief if you steal a horse. You steal a horse because you are a horse thief. It's the condition of your person, right? I am am not a car thief. I would not ever steal your car. Therefore, I am not a car thief. (laughs) Can't happen. Won't happen. Uh, There are certain things, uh, now, uh, are there things I might be tempted to do? Certainly, right? There are other things I have to constantly control. I I have to submit myself to the Spirit and let the Lord control those things in my life, my heart, my mind, my behavior first. Because what are the two things that lead us to sin? Desire and opportunity. If you don't ever have the desire, throw the opportunity out in the open all you want. I don't desire it, therefore, I'm not going to do it. If I have the desire and now the opportunity comes, now I'm in trouble. So the condition of the heart is what he's saying. If you have hatred, then you're a murderer. You have that in your heart. You have a murderer. And he's coupling this back with Cain and Abel, okay? Cain and Abel. Now now, now get real deep and real personal on yourself because if you see the person who is doing the will of the Lord, the work of the Lord, and they're being blessed by it, and you have any degree of anger over the fact that they're doing that? You know, look at this guy, you know, super Christian over here, showing up early, working real hard, staying late. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's obeying the Lord and what the Lord has called him to do if there's a gripe and a complaint in the heart about that brother and his relationship with the Lord, you might want to examine what's going on in your heart and mind. Because that's what are we talking about? You know, Cain was doing what he wanted to do. Abel was being obedient to what the Lord had called him to do. And the jealousy between the two of them resulted in murder. It's it's a painful thing to examine sometimes, Where we are really at. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Um, Being selfless in serving others. That's where the body of Christ is needs to function. If you've been here for communion, then you've probably heard me talk about how uh, Paul is saying that we should not take communion in an unworthy manner, not considering the body of Christ. You can look at First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23 and following uh, for that explanation. I explain when we examine it that way that the body of Christ was meeting once a week and communion to them was a meal. It was a huge meal. It was a feast that they had, okay? And they would share. It was not just the symbolic bread and cup and taking them to remember Christ. It was a matter of sharing a huge meal together. And what was going on specifically at the church in Corinth is that the incredibly wealthy were showing up and eating like gluttons and drinking like drunkards until literally they were stuffed to gluttony and drunk at the communion table. Disgraceful to consider it. What was more disgraceful is the fact that there were slaves, right? 30 million slaves in Rome at the time. There were slaves in Rome that... Maybe even their master was one of those wealthy people, but they were believers, and now here's the wealthy person glutting themselves, and here's the slave going without anything. Starving. And Paul is saying, You are all the body of Christ, and how is it that some of you are glutting yourself and getting drunk, and others of you are starving at what you call the Lord's table? That's treacherous. That's really terrible. Some of the slaves, according to church history, that was the one meal that they were assured every week. They they had no assurance of any other meal throughout the They might get meals. They probably got meals, but there was no assurance they were going to get meal. Now you show up at church, that's the one time, and you're thinking, like, oh, this is it. We are going to feast. And instead, you are told, go sit over there in the corner. Paul says the person that did that would eat and drink condemnation upon themselves in eating in the meal in that way. Here, this love for one another should compel you to serve others. Not that now that Paul's written a letter and you read it and go, oh, that kind of makes sense. If the love of Christ is in your heart, you're not going to be able to sit there while your brother sits in the corner and starts. You're going to have to give. You're going to have to care for. We have to be very careful about our whole thing because now you got to move into some real practical application, right? Where you're riding around town, healthy and happy, safe in your vehicle, and you see that person that maybe you don't get along with so well from church and they've got a flat tire. And you quickly look the other direction and roll right on by. <laughs> consider consider that you're doing fine and they're struggling and you aren't reaching into their environment to help them. There's something very, very dangerous about this mindset. This love needs to naturally be in our hearts. And if it is not there, you got to examine what's going on. Why why is it not there? Well, you don't know the things I've been through in life. I have been so mistreated. You know what? Maybe you have. Maybe you have people always take advantage of me. If I stop and help, the next thing, you know, they're going to want me to take them out to lunch and you know, it's a, and we and you guys familiar with the term catastrophizing? So, catastrophizing is actually an action. But it begins in the thought process. If I do this, then this bad thing is going to happen. And if that bad thing happens, well, clearly all of these bad things are going to happen. So I'm not even going to begin the process. I'm going to stay right here inside my own bubble. You're taking action on imagination. Well, that imagination is based in truth because, again, you don't know the things I've been through. Yeah, well, now we're talking about what? Post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's get out of psychology And get into the Word of God. You know, maybe they are. Maybe they are going to ask more of you. Yeah, I know them, and that's just if I get involved, they're not going to stop talking, and I'm going to have to, you know, every time I talk to them at church, they just go on and on and on. Maybe that's exactly what needs to happen. You need to die to yourself. You need to reach out to them. You need to get outside your own head. And you need to start loving people. Tell me Christ did not love you like this. Which is what John is about to say. You were a filthy, rotten sinner. Who liked to talk about themselves too much. And Christ said, I want to get involved with that one right there. Claimed you as your own. Took you unto himself, stood you up in front of the whole world and said, this one is mine. Where we would never have taken some other people and said, this is my friend. (laughs) We're so selfish by nature. We are so sinful by nature. And John is right here. This isn't me warping this. This is what John is saying. You should naturally, by the grace of God, have a desire for the body of Christ, for people this way. You should reach out. You should pull them in. You should embrace them as your own. This is your character if you are a child of God. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I did read that. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart, his heart, right, from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Years ago, um... I had uh, a brother, i got to confess this, I had a brother who uh, would hit me up for money. Hey, you got 10 bucks I can borrow? Hey, you got 20 bucks I can borrow? And I personally uh, developed a thing a long time ago that I'll just be very upfront if somebody does that. And I'll say, um, you know, if I can afford it, I'd rather just give this to you, not Lend. Don't want you to borrow it, because if I if we do it on a lending thing and then you can't give it back to me, then you know there's the potential there for bitterness. And I just I'm not into any of that. So uh, this brother, hey, you I borrow 10, you can borrow 20 bucks. And so happened so frequently that I stopped carrying money, because if I got money on me, give it. And a long time had gone by. And, uh, he walked right up to me and said, Hey, uh, could I borrow a couple bucks? And I said, without any hesitation, if I had any money right now, I'd give it all to you. But I'm, uh, I don't have any cash and I pull out my wallet and I open my wallet and it's loaded with money. I just said, if I had any money, I would give it all to you. I don't have any money, and I open it, and my wallet's full. And the Lord said, now what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to honor you. And I pulled all my money out, fully expecting that he'd be like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. And he said, wow, thanks, and took all my money. I had to then re-examine my heart on the whole issue, not just with him, but on the whole issue. And come down to a more honest approach about the whole thing and a more loving approach to the whole thing. That do I really want to help you? Why couldn't I just be more honest and say, I don't know, how much do you need? And have a conversation, go through the whole thing. It was all based in self-protection. The whole thing was based in self-protection, right? Christ didn't come into this program with self-protection. Brutalized for your sake. Sweat, great drops of blood. Remember the last time that you were completely wet head to foot in a freezing cold night? Remember that? That's Jesus, right? They're lighting fires in the courtyard. Peter's warming himself because the scripture records that it was an especially cold night. Jesus has been sweating great drops of blood, and now he's in the freezing cold. And then they start beating him. And then they put a bag over his head and pound on him. And then they rip his beard out of his head and then they pound a crown of thorns into his head and then they tear his flesh apart with a cat of nine tails and then they crucify him that's that's not saying i'm not going to carry any cash so if i get asked (laughs) that's that's saying whatever the world needs of me i'm willing to sacrifice it i'm willing to give it christ demonstrates this, this this mindset right here you know, Paul is, uh, or John is intermingling what Paul was saying about communion right here not discerning the body, not caring for others. You have goods and you're not willing to give them to your brother. James says the same thing. This was a strong theme amongst the early Christian leaders. This isn't like, oh, a couple of them. One of them talked about that. This this is the core message and principle of who they are and what they're saying and what they're doing with their lives. Giving to and serving others. So here, he laid down his life. You don't want to shut up the doors of your heart. How does the love of God abide in him if that's the way you're acting? Verse 18, my little children, let us not love the world Or, excuse me, let us not love in word uh, or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And he gets into a little bit more complicated of uh, an understanding here. So I want to just dwell with this, that basic, simple understanding of your faith, your love can't just be words. Right. James says it's not love. If you see your brother or your sister in need, uh, he, he literally says naked without basic necessities, food, clothing or shelter. And you just shut the door in their face and say, be warm, be filled. If we are children of God, we must take action. It has to be. The nice thing is it works both direction, you guys. If you can look at this principle and you can understand this is what God is saying. This is what God is insisting. This is what God is teaching, that my word, my thought, my word, and my action must match, okay? A lot of times what we get trapped in is our words. Our thoughts don't match that, and our actions don't match that, but what we say is something super spiritual. It must come to the place where our thoughts, our words, and our actions all match they are of the same thing and that doesn't mean you lower the standard right i I had a friend years ago um we get on the subject of uh, christian bumper stickers and um you know i'm paraphrasing but in in the discussion he says yeah that's why i don't have any christian bumper stickers on my vehicle and i'm like what do you mean that's the reason he said Essentially, what he said was, "I drive like a demon, so I, you know, I can't, you know, would be a terrible testimony." You don't get to just lower the standard, right? You can't go 100 miles an hour over the speed limit and run people off the road, and then get to church and be like, "Oh no, I'm I'm a Christian," you know what I'm saying? You you can't conduct yourself as a heathen. You can't then say, "Oh well, I'll just change the way I talk about this." Because if you talk Christian, talk Christian, talk Christian, but everybody's watching your actions and thinking, I don't think so. You can't then just dumb down the talk. The standard is the word of God. The standard is God himself. We must raise the bar in our thought process, in our word, and in our action. You say, well, I can talk about it, but I haven't been able to do the action part. Do the action part. And what you'll find is the thought process is changing. If you love people the way that you're supposed to love people, then your thoughts will change. The things you under Jesus said, right, Uh, that uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you invest in, your heart will move over to that. I always use, uh, you know, main pickup trucks as the example. They're they're rusted out, beat up, destroyed. But you dare insult a man's pickup truck and you're going to have words. Why? Because he's invested heavily in that thing. You know what I'm saying? He wouldn't believe the number of times he's pieced it back together. He's crawled underneath it. He sawed stuff off. He's welded stuff on. He rebuilt the whole bed himself. It looks like a piece of junk. He's in love with it. Because where his treasure is, there his heart will be also. If you will invest in the people, if you will invest in the things that you need to, you will discover that your heart is automatically converted in the process. Giving to the Lord, loving in the way that the Lord would have you to love. So not in word, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if your heart does not, if our heart (laughs) does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, uh, this sets the stage for verse 22 and following, but the idea of if your heart condemns you, then you you need to examine why. And if you'll correct your heart, so that your actions match your words match your thoughts then there is no condemnation there's a great confidence that comes in functioning the way that we should that there there is a problem for the believer in inconsistency you know hypocrisy saying one thing and doing something different that, that will torture your soul. As much as you like to convince yourself and walk away and feel happy, you're going to be tormented by the inconsistency. And th- that, that uh, you know conscience that is being damaged when you have the discomfort, when you don't have the confidence about your relationship with the Lord, then you've got to examine where is this consistency falling apart. You know, as... Uh, when you when you hear yourself or you hear somebody just, you know, justifying and justifying, it. yeah, of course, I did something terrible, but here, let me explain why it's okay that I did that, and you go on and you go on and you go on about it. What was it that Hamlet said? There, Methinks thou dost protest too much. Hamlet's uncle had killed his father. Hamlet orchestrates a situation where the actors come in and they're, Depicting in the play the actual act of his uncle killing his father. And his uncle's watching the play and begins to freak out about what is this outrage? What are you depicting? And Hamlet stands up and says, Methinks thou dost protest too much. Your conscience is damaging yourself. Clear your conscience through right thought, through right word and right action then the Holy Spirit uh, can overwhelm that. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him when we're in the right place, right? When when the Psalms tell us that God will give you the desires of your heart, okay? Uh, We have heard false teachers say, so whatever you want, just ask. And here is God saying, whatever you ask, you will receive in him. Well, if my mind and my heart are not where they belong, then I'm going to be asking for things that don't line up with God's will. And God is not going to give them. You just heard what he's saying about get the whole thing correct. Your thoughts, your words, your actions. Then there is no condemnation Within it. If my thoughts and my words and my actions are all corporately right, then the things I'm going to desire are going to be proper too. So then when I ask for them, God is going to provide them. God will give you the desires of your heart. Literally in the Hebrew language is saying the desires in your heart are all messed up. If you will abide in God... He'll give you the proper desires in your heart. That's what he's saying. He's not saying whatever thing you magically wish for right now, God's going to provide. God's going to give you the desires of your heart. Right. Remember when it was very plain and obvious how messed up your desires were? And now that you've been a Christian for a certain period of time, you get sort of confused of God. You know, I, I, I don't mean to pick on anyone. I'm not at all, but. I don't know how many times people have come and said, I want a spouse. And uh, I always say, well, you know, being someone's spouse is about dying to yourself and serving someone else. Are you ready to do that? And they always go, yes, I am. Really? What if they like your house to be 50 degrees? Summer and winter. Right? What if they like their music incredibly loud? What what if they like food that you can't stand? You say you're ready to be a servant. But being a servant means you serve someone else, you die. You die in order that they would live and they would be fulfilled. That's being someone's spouse. And usually the person that's very insistent of, I want a spouse, is nowhere near ready for that at all. Nowhere near. They are so used to falling asleep when they want to, and waking up when they want to, and having their coffee the way they want to, and having their house organized the way that they want to, and having their car in the condition that they like, and going to the places they like to go to. The list never ends. Wanting to be someone's spouse is dying. Just end it there. End the discussion. When you're ready to die, well, then come talk about spouse. Because I have witnessed countless times, and I'm presently involved in one, where the two individuals were like, this is the person we must be married. And they got married, and it was literally like flipping the switch, and they're now saying, how do we get out of this? God, please give me a spouse. God, please take this spouse away. <laughs> When we are aligned with God's will, then the desires that are in our heart are God's desires. So then when I pray, he gives me those answers because I am aligned with him. It doesn't have anything to do with your desires, a spouse's desires, potential spouse's desires. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with us individually being aligned with Christ. Then when I say, Lord, could you please give me this? He says, yes, absolutely. That's my will also. James chapter 4 verse 3 specifically says, you ask and do not receive because you ask that you might spend it upon your lust. Uh, The idea is not even so much sexual as it is your flesh. You're asking from your flesh. And that's why you don't get it. Now, here's something to think about. The prayers that you've asked for that God hasn't answered, you might want to go back and re examine them and see where they're coming from. Because God assures us that if we're praying according to His will, He will give us those answers. He specifically tells us I am withholding answers because they come out of your flesh. For your flesh, that's something to consider. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. I mean, if I haven't answered it enough, there it is, right? That's how you get the thing you've asked for. Oh man, you guys! Some of you, some of you guys, some of you guys have been amongst the false teachers that are like, just name it and claim it; it's yours. You know, think about this, right? They're flying around the world in their jets. While some of us don't have cars. Glutting themselves upon the money from the church and not taking care of the poor in the church. They're robbing the body of Christ in order to care for themselves. And then they're promoting their doctrine, as though it were the truth of God's word. Why? Because the words of their mouth don't match their behavior, which clearly tells us that their thoughts don't line up with that also. So their conscience is torturing them. So they have to stand in the pulpit week after week and preach, no, my behavior is correct. No, my behavior is correct. No, my behavior is correct. My mansion, my house, my servants, my plane, it's all correct. And they make up lies, they even make up lies about our Lord in order to justify their action. Jesus was so wealthy that he didn't even know where he was going to sleep. He wasn't going to camp out with the disciples when he said to the rich young man, uh, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man doesn't even know where he's going to lay his head tonight because Jesus had so many mansions that he didn't know where he'd be sleeping tonight. That's the false teaching that it came out of the mouth of Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn. False teachers. False teachers robbing the body of Christ, enriching themselves. This is John warning us against the false teachers. We're going to turn the page, and that's he's just going to open both barrels and blast the false teachers. He's saying your words when they match your thoughts and they match your behavior. Your conscience becomes very powerful in the Lord, and then what you pray for and ask, he accomplishes in your life. Why? Because you're already lined up with him. You've aligned yourself with his will. So you're going to be praying for his will. Hear it one more time. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. It's pretty simple when you read the word of God. couple more verses, and this is the commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us us commandment believe in the name of the lord jesus christ there are many who reject the name of jesus christ oh jesus was a good teacher jesus was a prophet you know they might even go as far as to say jesus was supernatural do you say that jesus is god do you say that jesus is the only source of salvation right is that what you say Because if not, then you fit in the rejecting of Jesus' name. This culture was being divided over the name of Jesus. You either embrace Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior, or you're rejecting him. That's that's what John is confronting them in this and keeping his commandments, right? What is the commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The singular commandment of the new testament believer we need to follow a couple of points just to close out with verse 24 now he who keeps his commandments abides in him somebody might say oh i abide in christ but then if they're living in rebellion then you are allowed to call into question whether they abide in christ remain in christ and you need to examine yourself in that regard he who keeps his commandments abides in him And he, capital H, in him, lowercase h. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us, this abiding in him. This is how we know the remaining and the abiding. Now, you should be very familiar. Uh, I just want to touch these two things as we close to sort of solidify and strengthen what was just said. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears fruit. He who does not abide in me, right, withers, cut off, thrown out, burned in the fire. You can't can't do anything without me. You must abide in me. So that fruitfulness in our lives needs to be present. Now, if you're confused about the abiding of the vine and the fruit, I just want to uh, put a couple things forward. First is love, right? Fruit of the spirit is love, and then when you go, comma, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the adjectives that refer to the love. Okay, so so he's giving us the definition of what biblical love is there. So s- singularly, firstly, you should have that love in your life. From abiding. If you're abiding in Christ, then that love will be present in your life, right? Angry, short-tempered, selfish, probably not abiding, right? Because the love, by definition, is not seen in your life. Secondly, right, fruit. Fruit is reproduction. Fruit contains the seed. Seed produces more of the same, right? We need to be reproducing as Christians. We need to share our faith. We need to speak to people. We need to invite them. How about this? I'll say this one more time. 80% of the people who are invited to church come to church. Do you invite people to church? You should. Every single one of us. If you have some fear of rejection, now we're back to the issue of the love of the world. Are you concerned about what they're going to say? You don't have to be good at it. Right? You're going to get better at it if you do it more frequently. You say I've tried to a few times. I got so beat red, and I just felt like I was gonna pass out, and I didn't know what to say. And uh, yeah, well, the thirtieth time you do it, you won't behave anywhere near like that. The one million three hundred thirty-six thousand nine hundred twenty-second time you've done it, you definitely won't be right. Do you guys have versions of your testimony? Do you share your testimony with people? Do you have versions of your testimony? And by that, I mean, do you have a 30-minute version, 15, 10, 5-minute version? You should. And you should work on it. You should work on sharing with people. Oh, my my testimony's not, you know, flamboyant. Good. Because probably the people you're going to speak to are the people who also don't have a flamboyant testimony, who just need to be invited to church. If we abide in Christ then we will be fruitful. We need to invite. Have you noticed that the world needs Jesus Christ? They need to be invited. Listen, I want to hit you with this last verse. Many of you know it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Those that wait upon the Lord will mount up wings of eagle, run and not be weary, walk and not be faint. The word wait is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. It means to be interwoven with. Those that are interwoven with Christ, that's where you're going to find your strength. That's where you're going to be able to continue on. That's where your endurance is going to come from. It's not going to come from being bored and sitting at the bus stop and waiting for Jesus Christ to show up. I'm just waiting for Jesus. Right now I'm completely exhausted. I've got no strength. I can, you know, fly like eagles, crazy. No, not at all. Crash and burn. That's the story of my life. Are you interwoven with Christ? If you are interwoven with Christ, then you will mount up a, on wings of eagles. Then you will run and not be weary. You will walk and not be faint. It's it's in the abiding, you guys. Think, think about you've got it. You've got to by now know and understand how easy it is to drift. Right. Uh, I I always use this illustration. I was working for Morris Yachts years ago. We were down in uh, Bass Harbor and electrician came on board. uh, He went out in a tender and he got this. I forget how many million dollar yacht. And he brings it around uh, to the docking station and um, he goes on board. He does a bunch of work and he goes back and I look over and I notice like he's not tied off. Right, And I say to him, like, you're not tied off. And he says, I know, I'm just going to be here a couple minutes. Yeah, you know, whatever, million, I, I don't know if it was $11 million or 4000000 million, multi-million dollar yacht. Tie this thing up. You know what I'm saying? He does not. And at one point, he comes back up. I'm watching him because I wanted to see this happen. He comes jogging up, and he's like 10 feet away from the dock. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. The bigger problem is the bay is full of other boats that he could have collided with, all kinds of other stuff, right? And now, more significantly to him at the moment, all of his tools are on the dock, and he's on the boat. And he has to fire it up and bring it back in, and he's making excuses about well, I was just, a, you know, 10 feet, no big deal. And I'm saying probably not what the owner would have said had you collided with that boat or that boat or that boat. Right? Abide, tied too fast and interwoven with the drift. Ah, uh, I got up late. I'm not going to read. I don't have time. I just drift. I drift. Right? Well, one, one hour. Three hours, 24 hours, three days, three months, three years later, you're out in the storm somewhere, right? You have to remain fastened to. You have to abide, interwoven, connected to Christ. Without that, you've experienced it. The drift and the failure and the fault always set in. Take it as encouragement, Right. If you're looking back across, this is how you can know you're a child of God. This is the fruitfulness. These are the things you will see. These are the things you're not going to see. And what's the summary in the end? Abide. Abide. That's where the fruitfulness comes from. So take it as encouragement from the Lord and from the Holy Spirit tonight to fasten yourself, fix yourself, and abide in Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, that's the time we have, so why don't we stand and we'll pray together. father god we are very grateful for your love your work your message your word is so powerful lord i pray that you'd help us to listen to it heed it abide in it lord help us to be interwoven and i know lord a great deal of that is actually on our side of the program Because you abide, you never forsake us, you never leave us. You're always there. Help us to be attentive to our relationship with you. Lord, help us to exercise our faith and to share with the world that we would invite people to just come to church. Lord, that they would be able to experience your word and the work that it performs in their lives. Guide us, protect us, provide for us. Be with Michael Davis. Give him health. Restore him, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.